Welcome to the LTC University Podcast, empowering and educating across the great state of South Carolina. Here we go. Welcome to the LTC University Podcast. My name is Jamie Preston, and today we actually have two special guests. We have Trent Prater from South Carolina House Calls. Trent is the Vice President of Palliative and Hospice Care. And then we also have Stephanie Lang, who works for Agape Care. And uh, I'm going to let Stephanie kind of talk about what she does for Agape Care. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Stephanie, tell us what you do for Agape Care. So I am Physician Services and Provider Relations. I get to contract with all of our physicians and manage their um, their kind of like um, invoices and make sure that they have everything that they need and expectations are being met with them, with our local clinical teams and with nurse practitioners. I've been blessed to be able to serve alongside Trent and kind of do the intensive training with them and kind of be the first person that they meet face-to-face from Agape Care. Awesome. Now, Trent, you you are SC House Calls and Agape Care are close partners. Tell us a little about that relationship that you guys have. Well, it's it's an exciting one actually, and um, I want to just give a shout a quick shout out to Stephanie because she's really been a wonderful partner in in this for the last few months. She had mentioned a couple of moments ago how we teach or work together with intensive training for our new providers. Um, so I think. Um, one of the things that really makes us uniquely better, I think, as a as a, a group of companies or partners, is that we really have the best of 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 everything. So we have a phenomenal hospice as a partner for SD House Calls that we can call on twenty four seven, and then they have the advantage of having an intimate relationship with their attendings. So for in hospice, you know, that's sometimes if a, a doctor refers their patient uh, to hospice. They're really hands off after that. And that's not the way SC House Calls operates. We work hand in hand with Agape Care SC, our hospice partner, in co-managing those patients' care. Uh, so I think it's really a unique and very special relationship that our companies have. Yeah, that's awesome. So today on this podcast, we really want to pull back the curtain and see what happens, you know, when a when a you know a physician or a provider you know, refers somebody to hospice. We want to talk about what kind of makes that person appropriate for hospice because you you have to be qualified to be on hospice services. But before we do that, let's just talk about how critical hospice is. Um, it saddens me when I hear that somebody has passed, you know, obviously, but it really saddens me when I hear that they've passed without being on hospice care when they could have had it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Stephanie, give us just a brief overview of what hospice does, and then we're going to jump behind the curtain and, and kind of get into those nuts and bolts, but give people an overview of what hospice really is. So what I think, um, and Trent and I both share this, that, and, and most people who have worked in hospice um, and palliative care will tell you in a, like really that they have a story. There's someone that they connect. Every patient represents one in their life. Um, and I know Trent will share his in a second, but mine is my granny. Um, she's so like influential in my life. She was absolutely precious to me. And I didn't know about hospice when we were taking care of her. Had we known, um, I think there would have been such a 
far different outcome, um, even on our family. Like in the end, the financial strain of even like briefs, wipes, um, just medicines, that kind of thing. Just that little bit of extra care for those people um, when you're taking care of your loved one is such um, an asset to being able to make sure that those people um, in your life are taken care of. And then the family, um, the, the burden almost that it puts on a family. So my granny is every person that we take care of because I wish we would have had that support. Um, and I think, Trent, you want to tell your story and who every patient is for you? Oh, absolutely. I know as we onboard new uh, providers here at SE Health Calls, I uh, when I teach my intensive uh, sessions, I always like to talk about about my experience with hospice, um, partly to to help me remember my dad, who was a hospice patient, because uh, who passed away many, many years ago, but also for, for the same reason that Stephanie just mentioned, because this is, uh, my dad is every patient that we have. And I am every, you know, father who dies, I'm their son. And my mom is their spouse. And um, so for so many of us that work in hospice, it is not just a paycheck. And that's the, that's common with healthcare in general. But it, with hospice, it's really a special group. I, most people that work in, in this genre of healthcare have a personal experience with it. And they feel like they're they're literally paying it forward and giving giving back. And so uh, when I was a senior in high school, my dad was diagnosed with adenocarcinoma. And this was many, many years ago in 1992, 93. And um, over that five right? right. uh, freshman in college, um, he declined, you know, declined and, and passed away in my um, sophomore year in college. But he was on hospice for um, the majority of that time. And that experience, although it was it was really hard as a 19 year old you know, kid essentially to lose my dad, the hospice was wonderful. And this was in, in North Carolina where I'm from. And uh, they just really ministered to my mom and my brother and I and, and served us so well and him as well. Um, and that's the reason I'm a nurse today. My experience with my dad in hospice is the reason I'm even in healthcare. Um, and I just, you know, I feel like every patient that I, that I touch or, or now in my role, every nurse practitioner that I can touch and educate, I feel like that's paying it forward and they're going to help someone's dad and someone's son, just like someone helped me. Yeah. That's what a story um, to see where you are now. And, and obviously you have an extensive background with hospice and, and being a hospice nurse at one point. Um, and, and, you know, and I've got those stories too. We're not going to get into that, but you know, I, I love hospice and what it does and how it could serve people. So what we want to do today, let's, I really want this to be geared towards providers today. I really want providers to get a glimpse of what qualifies somebody for hospice, what hospice is looking for, because there are some, you know, Medicare guidelines that have to be followed and, and they're pretty strict. Um, but if you know what to look for, know what a person's symptoms are and all those things, you can pretty well, you know, get it, defined if they're appropriate and then that nurse can come in and, and and make that final decision from hospice so stephanie do you do you or trent either one of you guys let's let's cut into that conversation of how somebody is qualified for hospice and what qualifies them for hospice trent, I'll let you go ahead i'm sorry <laughs> i said i'll defer to you so I actually um, have talked to a couple of nurses and um, some of our sales staff, because um, I deal with them a good bit, and just said, you know, what are those key things that you are, um, that we are, like, admitting patients for? 
So some one of a couple of the key things I said were COPD that that patient requires oxygen. Um, you've got CHF, their ejection fracture is less than thirty percent. You've got dementia. Um, there's a seven A score, and I'm going to let you, Trent, kind of um, go off of those couple things just so that people know exactly what that means because I know we have a lot of nurse practitioners that are coming in that may not know what an ejection fracture is or may not know what the 7A score means but a 7A score or less um, that they're you know oriented to maybe name and place but not necessarily more than that they have to have you know assistance with those ADLs um, they may have a lot of um, nonsense talk there's um, dialysis that that patient requires dialysis there's renal failure um, and they also also could have acute, acute renal failure um, diagnosis not related to their, like, say, their congestive heart failure. And, of course, cancer. Everybody thinks hospice is automatically cancer, but it's really not. There's so many other things that you could be diagnosed uh, or be um, approved for hospice for. Um, and, you know, you've got the palliative treatment. Um, you could actually do radiation sometimes, palliative radiation, but not necessarily the chemo. So um, just kind of making sure that people understand where a patient might be in their walk with whatever their terminal diagnosis is. Yeah. And, and Trent, talk about, because um, let's, let's kind of go to dementia, because dementia is a probably one of the hardest diagnoses, you know, to qualify. I've seen it so many times when I went out to see a patient, patient couldn't talk, couldn't say more than, you know, three words. Um, mm-hmm. Then the provider goes out or the nurse goes out to qualify them and they have a full conversation with them. <laughs> uh, I've seen it so many times. So it can be tricky. So, you know, what are some of those things when you're looking for with dementia? Well, thanks, Jamie and, and uh, Stephanie for teeing that up really well. I'd love to, I'll go f- through dementia first and then we'll just maybe have a little conversation about what makes someone appropriate. But dementia is a tough one, uh, right? Um, Medicare previously had paid for adult failure to thrive and dementia as primary diagnoses. And a while back, they stopped that. Um, so if we're saying dementia or Alzheimer's, some of the things that an NP r- a provider should really be looking for, or if they see these things to think, this is a probably or perhaps a, an appropriate patient would be that FAST score, the functional assessment uh, staging test that Stephanie mentioned earlier. They need to at least be a seven, right? And, it, and the higher, the better. So normal um, cognitive ability or decline would be a one through five. When you get to stage six, it goes A through E and then seven A through E. Um, and so the important things for a provider to remember there is that you can't skip around. So you can't, uh, you have to score the patient at the least thing that's going on with them. Um, so for example, if someone is is not incontinent, but they cannot walk, then we wouldn't want to jump from a 6D um, or E all the way to a 7C um, because they've lost the ability to ambulate. They may have been in a car accident or had a bad hip replacement and they can't ambulate for whatever reason. Um, so they can't skip that around, but they need to have that 7C And then the other thing with Alzheimer's type um, diagnoses is we're really looking for some of these other things like are the patients having aspiration pneumonias? Um, Are they had septicemia? Uh, Are there, um, is there the presence of multiple pressure ulcers stage three or four? That can be a real big one. 
um, inability to maintain a fluid intake and weight loss. Those are big. And so as um, I'm, I'm reminded back to my days in assisted living where we would go in and see patients that would, it would take an hour and a half to feed them. Um, because if someone didn't assist them with that, their cognitive ability was such that they wouldn't even know the food was in front of them or they wouldn't know the process for picking up the spoon and eating. So, so those, those are some of those things. If a patient, as a hospice nurse, I've always thought, can the person make their needs known? And if they can't make their needs known to me, then that's a, that's a relatively advanced, you know, dementia slash Alzheimer's and probably someone who is more likely than not appropriate for hospice. Yeah. And I think it's, it's good to know too, if, if it's, if you feel like it's borderline check, you know, that, that hospice nurse is going to come in and just see, and then they can have them on the radar. If they're not appropriate, they can come back and, and check on them later, um, to see where they're at in their stage. So that's absolutely right. Yeah. Some of the markers that we we talk about with our providers every day and have a lot of great resources for our NPs are things like, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the the FAST score, but what about do they have either greater than six diagnoses or any end-stage disease or advanced illness? That would be a marker um, if your patient has those. Um, have they had a sudden or progressive decline in, say, their nutritional intake and uh, weight loss related to that? That could include yeah. the provider in. Um, they, we talk a lot about scales. I know in hospice, Stephanie uses these a lot as well. We, we talk about hospice scales, like the FAST is a scale or the PPS, the palliative performance um, scale. A lot of those are scales and New York heart classification. So if the patient's PPS is a 40 uh, or less, or it can be even a 70 or less if the this is, diagnosis is cancer, then consider, you know, at least think about hospice, a fast of 7A or higher, or do they have multiple comorbidities or secondary conditions? And that's important because in the past, we've really had the approach with hospice that it's the terminal diagnosis. And uh, don't get me wrong, a patient does have to have a terminal diagnosis, but really now we're thinking more in terms of the terminal prognosis. Um, And in Medicare stance really, you know, as they really move more towards everything is related uh, to the terminal diagnosis in terms of what the hospice is responsible for managing, they're really looking at it like it's it's not just one disease process or one diagnosis, but it's the overarching you know, issues with the patient. And, and, and that's what's going to lead them down that road. It may not just be their cancer, but it, all, it may be their cancer and their liver failure and their heart disease and their diabetes, all of those things work in concert. So, yes, so those absolutely. are a few examples. Some diagnostic studies would be something like, um, I think Stephanie mentioned the ejection fraction earlier. If we have a pay in the presence of heart failure, um, we would really love to see that EF of less than 20. Um, now we are really lucky to have great partnerships with diagnostic mobile imaging groups so that we can actually order and do at the, in the patient's home an echocardiogram to get that uh, result. But that's one um, oxygen saturations that are below 88% would be another one in pulmonary disease. Those things just lead a provider to think, mm, this patient may be, uh, may be appropriate. And then on a more global scale, things like multiple recurrent infections, has your patient had, you know, multiple bouts of pneumonia or you or you upper um, respiratory infections, urinary tract infections? Have they had multiple hospitalizations or even emergency department visits? That could be an indicator. Um, Again, multiple stage three or four pressure ulcers despite optimal care. That is a big one because that tells you a lot about their ability to move, 
tells you a lot about their overall health and circulation. It tells you about their nutritional status. So I've always believed that uh, pressure ulcers can really tell us a lot about a person's condition. Um, just the, the patient's ability to perform their activities of daily living. Uh, do they need uh, more assistance now than they did six months ago when you as their provider were taking care of them? All those things are clues. Do they have a decline in their cognitive ability? maybe disabling dyspnea while at rest? Do they have difficulty swallowing, leading to aspiration? All those things can be clues. And again, all this within the context, we're so fortunate to have providers who are already seeing these patients, uh, the SC house calls patients. So if you have had a patient for the past six months and you've seen any of these things as, in terms of decline, and if you can say then, meaning two, three, four months ago, they were, they were a certain way and now, they are, you know, have decreased in their ability to do, to do things, then that's a clue they may be hospice appropriate. Yeah. And, and before we move on to the next step here, talk about those things like, you know, can they be seeking aggressive treatment, you know, like chemotherapy, um, dialysis, you know, and I know every situation is a little different, but kind of get into that a little bit, Trent. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and you really have teed it up for me to talk a little about our wonderful palliative care uh, program at SC Health College, too, in conjunction with our, our partners at Agape Care. And so, yes, there, there are differences for sure. Uh, now, patients can receive some of those treatments if it is palliative in nature. They, they, a patient on hospice could have a blood transfusion if it was for comfort. Typically, they, they wouldn't, but it's not that they, they couldn't. But um, if, if we, our providers are caring for patients and they are uh, have a have a terminal diagnosis, but they still want to seek aggressive treatment, then hospice wouldn't be the right, uh, you know, level of care or right place for them. It would probably be palliative care. And we have an answer for that. We have a wonderful palliative care team that could follow that patient. Um, they can, they have advanced training and, and specialized training in managing um, severe pain, pain uh, symptoms, um, disease processes that are, are not typical for the primary care provider. Um, and then one of the most special things about our palliative program, I think, and Stephanie, I, I know would agree with this, is that uh, when we have patients that are hospice appropriate, which we do often, but they're just not mentally or emotionally on board with that yet because who wants to, to come to terms with that, you know, their mortality. Um, the palliative care can be consulted by our primary care nurse practitioners. And then the patient and family has two trusted voices in their ear and in their home, you know, saying the same thing and sort of just gently shepherding them, if you will, into, into that understanding of what palliative and hospice is. And so they can go from seeking aggressive treatment, having the chemo or, or whatever that may be, into under, a better understanding of when it's appropriate uh, for hospice and, and what hospice is, and then they can move on into that level. And then our wonderful partners, Agape Care SC, can take it from there. Absolutely. And I think that's a blessing, Trent, I'll say um, to both of you, is that, you know, palliative is a softer word. And people often want to, they mistake that um, palliative for hospice when really they're two distinct um, programs. And so I think that having that palliative program, like you said, Trent, is so key for us because um, to be able to partner with SC House Calls, because we do have that where they're in there and they're preparing that patient and their family for what is the inevitable um, that is coming, that hospice, and and kind of building up and educating them. They're taking that role and saying, okay, this is where it's going to go. This is what we're doing right now. 
And while we believe what you believe that that healing will come, but we're also, you know, allowing that patient to seek that um, aggressive treatment. And, but if it doesn't work, this is where we're going. And let me tell you how this works. And I think that's such a blessing because, you know, with hospice, with our, our teams um, here at Agape Care South Carolina, we want them, you know, we want people to be educated because there's such a stigma with the word hospice. Um, so much so that, you know, oftentimes people are like, please don't wear your name tag. We don't want people to know that it's hospice coming in. It's scary, but it's a beautiful program. And like it circles back to the reason that we both do it is that we believe so wholeheartedly in the program and what it offers that we don't want one single patient um, and their family to experience their loved one passing away without the experience of having hospice. Yeah, and one of the things and you I- mentioned, Jamie, you mentioned earlier the um, how we work together, and one of the one of the beautiful ways that I think our two companies partner is is with palliative care, and it's with this sort of um, what I like to call bi-directional referrals. So, for example, if there's a if there's a patient that is a hospice patient and they are not really declining fast enough, or or you know, it's a it's a human business. So maybe we uh, we put them. They were admitted to hospice, and they they're now unsure, and they want to to maybe back away for a bit. Then Agape Care can refer to our palliative team, um, and then our palliative palliative care team can manage that patient and family, and then continue to follow them. And we work with uh, the liaisons and Stephanie and her team with with uh, Agape Care SC. And so when the patient is then ready, be it physically or emotionally for hospice, then we just refer them right back. So in, in our patient driven model of care, that is just a wonderful way that we prevent patients and families from falling through the cracks. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and that's a great partnership. There's no doubt about it. That's, that's the way it should be. And this is something I used to always tell patients when we would go to uh, do just kind of that initial contact is because some people would say, well, I don't want this. I don't need to have this, you know, and I'd say, yeah, but you earned this every, every week or every, whenever you got your paycheck, you were paying into Medicare, you were paying for this and you earned this service. And so why not have that extra help and, it just makes so much sense. And, and anybody, I've never heard anybody that had hospice care that said, I regret having hospice care ever. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So let's move on to part two here. Now let's, let's say a provider notices somebody's declining. They, they see that, you know what, this person is probably a very good candidate for hospice. They place an order. They send that to Agape Care what happens next and where does the provider, what happens to the provider at that point? What's their role in all of this? So I can speak to what happens next after that order is submitted to Agape Care. Um, It's sent in and that local team is notified. So someone contacts that family. Hopefully at that point, the nurse practitioner or someone from SC House Calls has prepared that family that they are going to make that recommendation um, and that they've kind of started the conversation. So then we contact the family. We kind of um, educate them on the Medicare guidelines. Um, we tell about what hospice really consists of a little bit more. We reiterate, hopefully, what that nurse practitioner and or that SC House Calls um, fa- like faculty member has already told them and say, you know, 
this is what hospice looks like. This is what you can expect from us. We kind of set that that tone for what's going to happen for care from that point on. Um, and that we also, you know, make sure that we let them know that with our partnership with SE House Calls, because those nurse practitioners are not leaving at that point. They are still moderating that care. They're still overseeing with the help of the hospice team, that hospice um, physician um, who does the IDGs for them. They're still overseeing and making sure that the medications are the same, um, which kind of goes against, like, kind of with that um, commercial that we had, Trent, where you let them know nothing changes for them. Like, it's the exact same care. We don't have to change medications. Um, the same people are going to be coming into your home. You may have additional people coming in, but you're still going to have that same nurse practitioner coming into your home repeatedly and doing those face-to-face -face visits. But we also can come in. It kind of um, caveats off of what you said earlier, Trent, is that we still have that diagnostic imaging. We still have the lab work that can be done. So things that may be outside of that hospice care, um, you know, what's the hospice, hospice diagnosis, we can still take care of them outside of that by with, with SC House Calls and our partnership. And that's a great point, Stephanie. And you reminded me, I'm, I'm going to step outside of the, out of, of the podcast for just a moment. And you reminded me just now to, to think, to mention that since this will predominantly or primarily be for our providers, um, we, we are tempted to order labs and uh, diagnostic imaging and et cetera. And we uh, I have empathy for our providers because in a day's um, time frame, they may see several primary care patients and then a couple of hospice patients as well. And they really have to turn their hat around 180 degrees uh, different in the way they document and treat um, primary care patients versus hospice. So just a note to our providers, um, when we uh, SC House Calls has different contracts or has contracted with different vendors for labs and for uh, mobile imaging. So we use dynamic mobile imaging, as you know, we use Mako Labs. The hospice has contract, our hospice partner has contracted with different companies. So if you want to order, let's say labs or or anything like that, it's, it's a good idea. The, the hospice can do that. Um, so we can put those orders in and send those uh, orders to the hospice and then they can do that. And that way they have um, they're not paying four or five, six times what their contracted rate is. So that's you know not exactly what we we're going to talk about today. But since this is for providers, that is point. something I hear from our hospice partner a lot is is we order it and, and let them actually um, order it with their provider on record or their their vendor. Absolutely. Since we're using we're we're using Medicare's limited resources here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so talk about the. Per Go ahead, Stephanie. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jamie, but I think that's very appropriate, um, Trent, because that's one of the questions. Because they are of the mindset. Normally, our nurse practitioners that we partner with with SC House Calls are so, um, you know, that's their mindset. They're seeing that primary care. Our hospice patients are one out of every, you know eight, nine patients that they see in a day. So I do believe, I, I, I agree with that. And I'm glad that you did um, mention that as well. Yeah. So kind of talk about that provider's role, kind of, and, and, and let's be specific. What is their role once they've, you know, referred somebody to hospice, they've been accepted to hospice. Talk about their role as a provider. Because a lot of hospices only see, like, they, they would only have a provider or a nurse practitioner see them every three months, you know, which isn't the case with South Carolina House Calls. You guys are much more involved. 
That's absolutely right. And, and that is really the strength of this partnership. Um, so there are uh, almost an innumerable amount of hospices in the state of South Carolina. And of course, there's even more primary care practices. So it's not that we do those roles uh, because a lot of different companies do those roles. It's the manner in which we do them is what really sets us apart. And by that, I mean, uh, for example, if we have a provider in the upstate where I live and, and um, she has been uh, seeing a, an attending for a patient um, and she's maybe pal con con consulted palliative care and worked with our palliative care folks to move the person along and now it's time for hospice. We, we are different than a typical family practice in that when they refer a patient to hospice, usually they sign off. Um, because most practices believe I'm not going to see the patient. Uh, I, I don't want to get called all hours of the day and night as attending for a patient that I can't bill for. Um, and so that's typically the case. But with us, we there's no break in that continuity of care. If that provider in the upstate has been seeing that patient, she makes the uh, referral slash order for hospice, Hosp our hospice partner admits, then that provider just continues to see that patient now, not only as they're attending in primary care, but now that NP is there attending for hospice. So it's this marriage between SE House Calls and Agape Care where the, the um, nurse practitioner can continue to follow them. But as Stephanie said, it's really adding additional resources. It's not changing or we're not stepping back. We're just adding this wonderful team of, of nurses, social workers, chaplains, bereavement coordinators, hospice volunteers, and Agape Care's wonderful medical directors that have I mean, between them, just uh, between all of them or among them, hundreds of years of experience managing, uh, you know, patients at end of life. So it really is, uh, it's just such, it's hard to explain the benefit that, that that is. And then we, you know, for those regulatory visits, you mentioned in, in many cases, the patient would only be seen every, every three months before what well, I'm sure you were referring to a hospice face-to-face -face visit, which is a regulatory visit. Um, and so for patients of agape care that we are there attending, which is the majority, uh, you know, it's, it's not that um, only seeing them every few months. We just have that wonderful relationship uh, with them. And in a perfect world, we'd have a great relationship with, with that hospice nurse and that hospice nurse and the nurse uh, practitioner are talking, you know, every day, every couple of days, every week at least. And, and that is that continuity of care. And at the end of the day, that's really our, our patient driven model, keeping the patient at the center of everything. I think I've never seen it done any better than that. Yeah. I agree. And, and, and both of you can speak to this, you know, and I've heard this said from some other hospice nurses, it's different because, uh, you know, say a provider, they're going to document, you know, for health, they're documenting for somebody getting better and getting healthier. Hospice is documenting for decline, which is completely the opposite of what a provider would typically, you know, talk about that a little bit and, and how that works. Um, Trent, you've done that. Stephanie, you work with these providers and nurse nurses that do that. So talk about that a little bit. Trent, you have like, I think 40 minutes of your presentation for that intensive is about the documentation of decline and what we're doing and how you properly make sure that if somebody comes back and says this hospice patient, what were they really, if they were audited, what were they doing on hospice? How did we prove that they needed to still be on hospice? I think that's, that definitely goes to what your presentation um, in your intensives. So I'll let you speak on that. 
Yeah, we, we teach a lot of different things in the intensives, but probably in, in terms of what I teach, uh, we, or you and I teach, the, the largest percentage of our time, several hours with the uh, providers, is on that documentation of decline. I think we call that presentation painting the picture of terminal illness, and, and we really drill down with especially our new providers coming coming into the SC House Calls family. You know, um, we talk about being very clear and also being comparative. So we want to compare the then versus now because um, without a then versus now, you, you can't show decline. You have to have two points in time. So we, we speak uh, or we spend a lot of time on that process and what is their perception. We talk about being really um, descriptive about things. What do you see, hear, smell, taste, or see, hear, smell, and touch, or feel? And um, and the providers in our intensives have really taken heart to that, and they've, they've done a very good job on documenting. But, uh, but yeah, we spent a great – at least 40 minutes, I think, with each new group on just painting the picture of terminal illness. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. the reason for that, if I can say, Jamie, the reason for that is that these nurse practitioners, when they are making those face-to-face visits and they're putting their, note, their notes in and that face-to-face visit note, um, our – hospice physicians that are on the other side do not by and large see these patients. So they are taking whatever that nurse practitioner's um, view is. So it's so important for them to be very um, descriptive so that they can say, yes, I agree with this nurse practitioner. This patient is still um, certified hospice appropriate every time that they go in and, and they have to recertify that patient. Yeah. That makes me think, Stephen, that's a great point. And, and um, I've had a couple of conversations just recently over the last week or two with some nurse practitioners um, about the face-to-face. And this gives me a real a real good opportunity to, to let our providers know, our nurse practitioners, when even if you are the attending provider for this hospice patient, when you're going out and doing a face-to-face, you are not making the determination of eligibility for that patient. And it may it, it does seem really confusing, uh, kind of like if you're the attending, you can serve as, as a nurse practitioner as the attending for a hospice patient, but you can't sign the certification of terminal illness. Um, so, uh, you know, those, those are things that we'll work through legislatures to, to change, hopefully. But um, oftentimes nurse practitioners, because we have such they have such ownership of these patients, they they believe, uh, you know, they they're. Um, may think the person is appropriate or not appropriate or or whatever. And some have a ton of experience, but I want to just implore to our MPs that when you're completing our documentation for SC house calls in Athena, our EMR, uh, that it's, it's not a place for anything subjective. It's not a place for opinion. Um, If you think the person is appropriate or not, even if you've been there attending for, for a long time, the federal government doesn't care about that opinion. The federal government wants the certifying physician, the that hospice medical director, that hospice team, they're the ones making the decision. And so what we need to do for SC House Calls is be the best collectors of data that we can be. Um, we want to collect, we want to use our hospice scales, we want to use that then versus now and use all the wonderful clinical judgment and wisdom that our nurse practitioners have and, and, and then complete the attestation statement so that we're saying we're the actual person who did this exam, not someone else. And then we send that to our hospice partners and we let them make the decision. And Stephanie raised a wonderful point a couple of minutes ago. The medical directors typically have not been out to see these patients. They're not in their homes like like we are. So um, 
one of two things will happen with our face-to-faces. <clears throat> if a medical director doesn't know the patient at all, let's say, and our nurse practitioner goes in and they and the patient is is really appropriate, but the documentation doesn't speak to that. Our face-to-face doesn't paint an accurate picture. If that provider doesn't know the patient, they're going to say, okay, well, it looks like this person is not appropriate. We need to move to discharge. If the provider, if we would then go to our nurse practitioner and say, do you think they should be discharged? If the NP would say, oh my goodness, no, they're very appropriate for hospice, then that doesn't make us look great. Uh, now, the other thing is, the other side of the coin is if that medical director does know that patient really well, and in many instances they do because they've been on service for a while and they've listened to their team talk about them in their IDG meetings every two weeks, if they know them well and they know they're appropriate and our provider has completed a, a face-to-face documentation that really speaks to them not being appropriate, then they're going to look at us and say, you know, what kind of NPs do they have doing these face-to-faces? Because we know this person's really appropriate. So, uh, and I, I tell that to all the new providers coming in, we want to look smart because we are smart and we want to, um, we don't want anyone to lose this wonderful benefit um, that shouldn't lose the benefit. And so be very, um, be very objective when you're doing a face-to-face visit. It's not about opinion. You're collecting data and using your wisdom and judgment and giving that to this wonderful hospice team, and then they make the determinations. So, so one of the things I can say to that, um, you know, speaking on behalf of our, our hospice physicians, they are always open. They are eager to meet the nurse practitioners, to have conversation, to educate. Um, they've been doing hospice. A, a lot of them, like you said, they collectively have hundreds of years of experience. If you added it all together, they are eager to work with these nurse practitioners. So if there's ever a question or there's something that they may not be sure on, they, I'm happy to make sure that they have those telephone numbers, they have the email addresses. Those physicians are waiting and ready because they do know that it's a partnership. They are truly an extension of what, the, they're the eyes for our physicians out there in the field. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So lastly, let's, because I think what I've seen in the past with physicians or providers, they, they are so well trained to heal people. And a lot of them get hung up on and they consider it throwing in the towel with a patient when they need hospice services, when they are terminal, they say, you know, we can do that one more round of chemo. We can do one more, you know, uh, you know, procedure, you know, when it's probably appropriate to call in hospice, talk a little bit about, you know, helping them understand when to make that decision and when to make that call. Um, well, I mean, that's, from my point, <laughs> that's too full. Go ahead. Go ahead <laughs> from my point of view, it's, it, and this is something that comes up a lot with our providers is, is just trying to think about putting the, putting the patient or helping the patient um, go to the, the right level of care, or the right place of service, if you will, for where they're at. And, and, and at SC House Goals, one of the things I see, it's, it's similar to what you were talking about with, uh, you know, continuing with chemo and things is, uh, we, we employ a lot of new providers. And I'm so glad that we do that because we can just mold them and I can teach them hospice and, and, and share a passion for that with them. But they're still very, very new and, uh, and green. And with that, by that, I mean, it's, um, it's really difficult to have a serious illness conversation. It's difficult for physicians to have this conversation, admittedly so. Uh, and so one of the things that I, I, that I have seen in, in my time, especially at SC House Calls and the role I'm in, 
is uh, a lot of uh, times or sometimes the patient would be hospice appropriate, but we make a referral to home health instead. Because you said it earlier, Jamie, we want to save the day. I, I'm, I'm a nurse and I want to save the day. Uh, the, the first half of my career was in the ICUs, burn intensive care units. And every day I left my shift thinking that person's alive and, you know, in large part because of me. Um, and so I have had to, in hospice, turn that around a little bit and say, you know, that that person's quality of life this day was better because of me or that that family member caring for this hospice patient, they're going to have a, a less stressful time and they're going to have a better memories of their loved one in part because of me. So I think if, if we take that mindset, um, but that's one of the things I've seen is if a patient is appropriate for hospice, um, I do see sometimes people pay, uh, providers will order home health instead because it's like, let's do the one more hurrah or, or I just don't feel comfortable having that conversation. To that, I would say, um, we have a lot of resources here, myself and many others, uh, including um, the Carolina Center, um, to really help our providers get comfortable having that conversation um, so that we can we can really have those tough conversations. And then I would just say to our providers, if you're a primary care, if you're one of our care management providers and you have a patient who's appropriate and maybe they're not on board, consult palliative. Bring a, one of our wonderful palliative care MPs in so they can help you sort of minister to this family, if you will, and, and talk to them about, about hospice. Stephanie, you get the, the last word. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. The said, I would tell you that we have a wonderful team of hospice liaisons that are very well versed and very prepared to have those conversations. Um, it's sad because our hospice physicians, sometimes not even our hospice physicians, but physicians in general feel the exact same way. They want to, you know, like you said, save the day or, or make everything better. And they really, you'd be surprised how many physicians are not comfortable having that end of life conversation. It's such a hard conversation that they even have a committee that we've, I actually recently got certified to to teach how to have that seriously ill conversation and that end of life conversation. Um, I can tell you that, you know, with those physicians that have I've had them tell me, I'm just not comfortable telling I've served this patient for 29 years. I'm not comfortable telling them they're not going to accept it. But I think you have to realize, um, Trent, what you said was you want to save the day. I think ultimately, if you believe in the hospice mindset, and I think it's making sure that we have educated our practitioners, our physicians, and our teams on what hospice truly is, that it is a benefit, I think that you have to realize that ultimately that referral to hospice is truly saving the day. That is truly what the end goal is. And it will be, like you said, nobody's ever said, I wish I'd have, I wish I wouldn't have called hospice or, and nobody's ever said, I wish I'd have waited to call hospice. They wish, mm. oh gosh, I would have called them earlier. Yeah. And they've never said, I, I don't, I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I called them. It was a terrible experience. So that's what I'll say for that. I think that, you know, it's just a matter of making sure that you call in your resources. Know that there are people, there's a whole team of people that are prepared. They are well-versed in having those conversations and they will gladly assist you. Absolutely. Stephanie, Trent, thank you so much for all this information. Um, I hope this helps some people out there, some providers, some other people that we partner with and, and, and that listen to the podcast. Um, thanks so much for all you do and, and all you're doing for uh, our South Carolina communities. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for allowing us the time to share hospice with our providers. Absolutely. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Yeah, this is 
2021 starts tomorrow actually we're recording this on uh, new year's eve so <laughs> just a couple of announcements every single month on the first monday of the month we have an event called the community leadership assembly you are invited especially if you're an assisted living administrator or skilled facility administrator and a social worker you can earn up to three ceu credits at this event you'll hear from a couple different speakers and we're going to provide lunch for only ten dollars you don't want to miss it so make sure you come to 1626 on main in columbia south carolina you won't regret it also if you'd be so kind to write a review for the LTC University podcast. Give us a five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. We'd love for you to check us out on social media. You can go find us at LTC University on Facebook. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Let's continue to learn together. Have a great day.